please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Since today is Palm Sunday, I decided to take a break from Exodus for a couple of weeks and focus on Palm Sunday today and on Easter, of course, next Sunday. My sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different. Although I'm going to read from Mark this morning, I'm going to take the story of Palm Sunday from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and combine it together into one story. I'm going to use a little sanctified imagination to try to help us imagine what the events leading up to and including that first Palm Sunday might have been like. But before I do that, let me read the Palm Sunday story according to Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street and tied it tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming king of kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Lord, help us to imagine what that first Palm Sunday must have been like, and then impact us anew with its message. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a warm day as Jesus neared Jericho. It was usually warm in Jericho this time of year because at 800 feet below sea level, it was near the lowest area on the planet, just north of the Dead Sea. Jesus had been traveling south from Galilee toward Jerusalem for some time now and was about to enter Jericho when a blind man on the side of the road cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Like everyone else in Jericho, this blind man had heard of this great prophet from Galilee who could heal people. When someone recognized Jesus coming and, and saw him approaching, the word spread quickly. and, Son of man, have mercy on me, the man cried out again. Jesus called for the man and asked what he wanted. And, Rabbi, I want to see, he said. Jesus said, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. To the astonishment and delight of the people, the man instantly received his sight. A little further into Jericho, Jesus passed under a sycamore fig tree beside the road and saw someone up in the tree. The Spirit of God had revealed to Jesus that this was Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector for that region. Zacchaeus was short and couldn't see over the crowd, but he wanted to see Jesus, so he had climbed up in that tree. 
Jesus told him to come down, and, and then he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' home for dinner. He led Zacchaeus to repentance that evening. Jesus then went down by the Jordan River, where John had once baptized people. Jesus and his disciples probably camped out there for several days until someone brought word to him that his good friend Lazarus was sick. After receiving this message, Jesus just stayed there for two more days. And then he told his disciples that Lazarus was now sleeping, but that Jesus was going to go and wake him up. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll, he'll get better. Now, we might think the disciples were not always the brightest bulbs in the box, but in their defense, the story hadn't been written yet, and they didn't understand. So Jesus was blunt. Lazarus is dead. Let's go to Jerusalem. Dead? What? How could he possibly know that? But they had bigger concerns. They knew that the religious leaders had spread word that if Jesus came to the upcoming Passover festival, he was to be arrested and executed. If we follow him to Jerusalem, it may be like walking into our deaths. As the disciples talked about this, it was Thomas who finally said, let's go so we can die with him. I suspect that some were thinking, Thomas, don't you know the Messiah can't or won't be killed? But we could die. But they finally agreed. Okay, let's follow him to Jerusalem. And if we die, we die. So Jesus and his disciples started out on the 15-mile, dry, barren, uphill road toward Jerusalem. It would be a climb of over 3,000 feet. Eventually, they arrived near the, at the village of Bethany, near the top of the Mount of Olives. Jerusalem was only two miles away on the other side of the mountain. Bethany, of course, was the home of Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Grief-stricken, Martha ran out to meet Jesus and half-accusingly said, If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus told her, Your brother will rise again. Martha didn't get it. She thought Jesus was talking about the final resurrection of the living and the dead at the end of the age. Someone told Mary that Jesus was asking for her, so she also ran out to see him. And she also said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus asked where Lazarus had been entombed, and they took him there. That's when he finally broke down and cried. See how much Jesus loved him, some said. Others said, couldn't the one who made the blind see have, revealed, or have healed Lazarus too? Jesus, being deeply troubled, told them to take away the stone from the tomb. To what? Are you kidding me? Martha told him that by now there would be a strong odor of death. But Jesus insisted, so they rolled away the large stone covering the entrance. Jesus looked up to heaven and prayed out loud, and then called out, Lazarus, come out! Some people who knew Lazarus had come to the funeral from Jerusalem. I suspect that some of them thought, this man's lost his mind. The grief has gotten to him. They waited, until finally... Lazarus appeared standing in the entrance to the tomb, wrapped in strips of linen cloths like something out of an old mummy horror movie. Much to everyone's astonishment, Lazarus, who had been certifiably dead for at least four days, was now alive and well. Many of the people in the crowd believed in Jesus, 
and went back to Jerusalem to spread the word of what had happened. Others became even more hardened. They went back and reported what happened to the religious leaders, who sent word again that if anyone saw Jesus at the Passover festival, they must report it to the authorities so he could be arrested. Jesus stayed overnight in Bethany, and his friends decided to give a banquet in his honor. Now, follow me carefully here. This was the day before what we call Palm Sunday. In other words, it was Saturday. But Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. It seems very unlikely that godly Jews would have given a banquet on the Sabbath, right? But we have to remember that the Sabbath ended at sundown on Saturday. And Sunday began at sundown on Saturday. So this banquet likely took place after sundown on Saturday, which was no longer Sabbath. This Saturday evening banquet was the beginning of what we would call Palm Sunday. So right after sundown, the ladies began preparing the meal. It was undoubtedly dark by the time the meal was served, so they ate by the light of little clay lamps filled with flammable oil. Martha served the dinner, while Lazarus reclined at the table with Jesus, his disciples, and other guests. But where was Mary? For formal occasions like this, the table was only a couple inches or so off the ground. Guests laid on their left side, around the table, resting their head on their left hand, while eating with their right. Their legs and bare feet were stretched out away from the table. Suddenly, Mary appeared with a pint of very expensive perfume. She worshipped Jesus, getting down on her knees and proceeded to pour the perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The whole house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. One of the disciples was not pleased. Judas Iscariot grumbled, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. The other disciples would later discover that Judas didn't care about the poor. He was the keeper of the group's money and had been stealing out of it. He wished the perfume had been sold and the money donated and placed in the bag entrusted to him so he could help himself to it. Anyway, Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this, uh, this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Wait, what? Burial? What was Jesus talking about? Contrary to Thomas, most people did not believe the Messiah would be killed. Honestly, Jesus was so hard to figure out sometimes. The next morning, which was still Palm Sunday, Jesus and his disciples started out on a slow, leisurely walk down the west side of the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. The sun, reflecting off the beautiful gold-covered temple in the distance ahead, could almost be blinding. Jesus sent two of his disciples to run out ahead to the tiny village of Bethphage, or as they would have pronounced it, Bethphage. He told them that they would find a donkey colt tied there, on which no one had ever ridden. They were to untie the colt and bring it back to him. If anyone challenged them, they were to say, the Lord needs it. Well, this surely didn't make much sense, but the disciples obeyed, and sure enough, they found the colt. And its owners challenged them, saying, Why are you untying that colt? 
Oh, busted. And they replied, the Lord needs it. And sure enough, the owners let them go with their colt. How did Jesus know about all this? People didn't call him a prophet for nothing. They brought the colt to Jesus, or the donkey to Jesus, and as they approached the entrance to Jerusalem, they put their cloaks on the donkey, and Jesus got on. Now the people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus had gone back to Jerusalem where they spread the word that he was coming for the Passover festival. Surely this prophet from Galilee who could raise the dead must be our long-awaited Messiah. Perhaps the time has finally come for him to deliver us from the Romans. Let's go out and welcome him. And they did, in droves. They took palm branches, going out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! This, of course, was all very subversive. I mean, Israel already had a king, Herod. In fact, they even had a king of kings, Caesar. To proclaim Jesus as king was to proclaim a rival king to Herod and Caesar. Not only that, but they welcomed Jesus by paving his way with their cloaks and by singing songs of praise and waving palm branches, just like their ancestors had done when the great Jewish rebel Simon Maccabeus had violently liberated Israel from pagan Syrian rule some 180 years earlier. They were hoping Jesus would do to the Romans what Simon had done to the Syrians. I'm sure any crowd proclaiming someone as king would normally have greatly concerned the Romans. Except when they saw Jesus riding in on a donkey, they may have even laughed. What kind of king was that? King, king, kings came riding in on large, powerful war horses, not pathetic little donkey colts. Kings were accompanied by well-armed military, not unarmed religious pilgrims. So Roman soldiers, not wanting to create a riot, decided just to keep an eye on it for now. What the Romans couldn't know, and in fact what Jesus' own disciples missed at the time, is that Jesus was deliberately fulfilling a prophecy given some 400 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 8.3 says, This is what the Lord says. In other words, this is what Yahweh says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Zion is the mountain on which the temple stood, located within the walls of Jerusalem. Zechariah 8.3 envisions a time when God himself would come to Jerusalem. It is in this context about God coming to Jerusalem as king that Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So who is this king? In Zechariah, God is Israel's king. When Israel rode into, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, it was like a public proclamation that he was that king predicted by Zechariah. He was claiming to fulfill the prophecies about God visiting his people. Now, I'm sure none of the people at that time made the connection between Messiah and God. They thought of the Messiah as just a powerful king of all kings. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save or save us. In other words, save us from the oppressive Roman overlords. 
They shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They may have been afraid that a large crowd proclaiming Jesus as king would bring a violent response by the Romans. But Jesus would not quiet this crowd. He did not say, Hey, folks, you've got it all wrong. I'm just a teacher or prophet. I'm not your king. No, Jesus told the Pharisees that if the people keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, Jesus is accepting their praise as true and publicly acknowledging that he is indeed the long-awaited king, the Messiah. This was potentially about as dangerous as things could get. If you were looking for trouble, it would be hard to find imagine a better way to do it. If you didn't know better, you'd almost think that Jesus was trying to get himself killed. Oh, wait. He had predicted his death several times. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had come to Jerusalem to die. As Isaiah 53 predicted some 700 years earlier, he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all, as Isaiah says. Now, there were some prophecies that, humanly speaking, were beyond the human ability of Jesus to fulfill, like being born in Bethlehem, like being pierced and crucified, like having his garments divided by casting lots, like being buried in a rich man's tomb. But this prophecy he fulfilled deliberately as a proclamation to all Israel. Your Messiah and God is coming to you, and I am he. Unfortunately, this accepting crowd was only a small percentage of the thousands who came to Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus knew that in only a few days, the crowds would turn on him and yell, Crucify him! As Jesus got closer to the entrance of Jerusalem, he began to weep over the city. He said, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but you couldn't see it. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, when their Roman enemies would encircle the city and dash it to the ground, along with its people and even its children. And Jesus is weeping over that. This terrible destruction Jesus predicted actually happened 40 years later, in A.D. 70. Anyway, Jesus continued on into Jerusalem, went into the enormous outer courtyard of the temple, where he spent some time looking around. Then, when it started getting late, he traveled down the steep hill from the temple into the valley. He then started back up on the other side, which was the Mount of Olives. On his way up the Mount of Olives, he would pass the Garden of Gethsemane, the site of his arrest on the following Friday, which would actually be Thursday night, by the way we keep time. Jesus came to Bethphage and returned the donkey, and then continued climbing up to the top of this 2,700-foot mountain, and stayed again overnight in the little village of Bethany, which was just over the top of the mountain. And that was the end of the first Palm Sunday. The next day, Jesus would return to Jerusalem and overturn money changers' tables. He would go back to the temple each day that week and teach the crowds. 
The religious leaders would challenge and debate him, but they did not arrest him, not yet. They were afraid the crowd would riot and that the Romans would step in and remove them from power for not keeping control. They had to look for a less public way to arrest him. That opportunity would come when Judas, the thief, would betray Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. So what do we learn from Palm Sunday? There is a sense in which Palm Sunday is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. For three years, he had been preaching and teaching. Jesus taught that he could directly forgive sin. And only God can do that. Jesus claimed that he was Lord over the Sabbath. And only God is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus claimed that he would be the final judge of the living and the dead. And that was only true of God. He claimed that he and the Father are one. Religious leaders thought all this was blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy was death, which is why they sought to kill him. But Jesus backed up his claims by healing incurable diseases, healing disabilities, casting out demons, turning water into wine, raising the dead, feeding massive crowds, calming storms, and walking on water. Now, after three years of this ministry, Jesus publicly rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, deliberately fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy about Israel's Messiah, King, and God coming to them. And that demanded a response. What would they do with Jesus? That question reverberates down through the centuries. What will we do with Jesus? There are only two options. Either we devote our hearts and lives to him as our ultimate King of Kings and Lord of Lords, or we don't. Neutrality is not an option, because neutrality is to choose against him. If you are not for me, you are against me, Jesus said. If your heart and life are not devoted to Jesus Christ as the ultimate ruler of your life, whether you know it or not, you are siding with Jesus' enemy, and you will share in his enemy's fate. Let's pray. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask that you give us that dedication, commitment, and loving devotion to you above all else. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.